This is the River Radius, a cultural nexus of rivers, people, and boats. I am your host, Sam Carter. Welcome. I'm actually not a traditional river user. I'm a backcountry user. I used to guide in, in the backcountry world years ago, and I came to Grand Canyon, and one of my first jobs was working in the backcountry office. And I always saw that the you know, Park Service's role should be to work as seamlessly as possible with the public to get them out there so they could have that real experience. I have my own computer programming um, background, plus uh, I studied religion and philosophy. And then one of the things in religion and philosophy that I really enjoyed was just the fact that um, people, before they would do, say, or think their greatest thoughts, would go spend time in the wilderness, it seemed. And to me, that's probably the best role I can have is just to help people make that happen. And so that's what I'm here for. And, and I've been over Backcountry River for, you know, since the 90s. Today's episode is all about river permits. Just recently at the end of January, the window closed to apply for most river permits on Western Rivers, and that application window is available through recreation.gov, or as you might call it, rec.gov. We will talk with the manager of all river permitting for rec.gov And we will also talk with the river permitting offices at Dinosaur National Monument, at the Sam and Chalice National Forest in Idaho, and at Grand Canyon National Park. River permitting is many things. It can be dreamy when we fill our choice dates on applications in January. It can be very exciting when we get a permit for the summer. And permitting can be extremely frustrating when we do not get any permits, nor do any of our friends. This show is all about the process of river permit lotteries, the history of permitting, and the growing interest in the art of exploring river corridors by boat. We start off with rec.gov. Good morning, my name is Sherry Hughes, and I am the permits and lotteries specialist to Recreation One Stop. Most people know it by recreation.gov. I work from home in central Idaho. The group that I work with are all virtual and work all over the country. The lead that manages the recreation, one-stop recreation.gov contract is an interagency group, uh, but the lead is the Forest Service. So my paycheck comes from the Forest Service. Before we get into the depths of your job, can you tell us about your personal relationship with Rivers and how that connects to the work you do? Uh, My personal relationship with Rivers is now going on 41 years. In 1980, I put in for a job Uh, with the BLM and the Forest Service as a summer position to get myself through college. The BLM called and said they had a great job building fence. And then the Forest Service called and said they had a great job working at a river launch put in on the middle fork of the salmon. I didn't know what that meant, but it sounded a lot better than building fence. So I started working for the Forest Service at Boundary Creek on the middle fork of the Salmon River in 1980. And I did 16 full-time seasons. As a launch point checker, that job kind of morphed into more responsibility, river manager job. The river community just was a was a fit for me personally. I was raised on a ranch and was not a cowgirl and always felt out of place. But once I got into that river community, they were my tribe. And so I have stayed associated with rivers ever since. It is deep in my personal time. That's what we do. 
Can you go into more detail about rec.gov? And I know I know it's recreation.gov in, in the vernacular seems to be rec.gov. Can you just explain that beast to us, please? <laughs> All right. Well, that's a big task. Rec.gov, recreation.gov in, in the big picture was envi- envisioned originally as a, a one-stop shop for getting your campsite reservations and then morphed into all kinds of federal recreation opportunities that needed to be reserved with the thought in mind that it was an easier place for the public to go to one site, hopefully have some similarity in business rules, cancellation policies, things like that. That was the early vision and trying to move that to a realm that is more standard than snail mail. And then, of course, on the backside, it also helps the agencies. If you have a river like the Middle Fork of the Salmon in isolated central Idaho and it has national attention, you know, sometimes it can be very difficult to try and and draw from that constituency that's all over the country. So this really is an advantage for places like that. It's a tool for permit systems, but it's just one piece of the tool. It's the reservation and allocation part of a permit system, and permit systems have a lot of pieces and parts in order to accomplish all the goals of the permit system itself. And would you tell us about your job? So what is your job? What is the work that you're doing? Uh, My job today, really the easiest way to describe it is that I am kind of a translator between the field systems that people develop in the agencies. So if you have your permit system out in uh, a location for a permit system, if they choose to come to rec.gov, that has to be translated into software. And I'm the person in the middle who helps them to understand how to move that oftentimes manual system from the field into a digital system in rec.gov. So you're not writing software, you're just helping the people who do. Yeah, no, I don't write code. I just understand how the code has to be logic, so to speak. There usually is a lot of intuitiveness into some of these systems. And of course, I can't program that into a computer. So we have to figure out how to translate that. And then the other piece of my job, which I should mention, is I keep all the implemented systems, the ones that are already in there. I work with them to make sure that things are on track, uh, help them to train and understand the system. We have a lot of new river managers coming into the system as people retire, trying to make sure they're up to speed on how to use the software, et cetera. Is the system running better? I think of when, when literally, you know, we would all do the postcards, the paper documents, put them in the mail, whatever it was, same questions that we do online, dates, alternative trip leaders, et cetera, and you'd send your check. Is, is the system... Is it, is it working better now as a digital platform? Well, of course, better is relative and it depends on which side of the, the situation you're sitting on. In a lot of ways, I do believe it is better. One of the challenges when I was working as a river manager on the Middle Fork, the government has very high standards in managing online security and dealing with all the things that we hear about every day on the news with someone getting hacked and people's information being compromised. So the government has some pretty high standards as far as what we have to abide by. And that's another reason people move to recreation.gov. You know, the Middle Fork was one of the earliest to try and move to an online system. And we just lost the ability to manage that kind of security locally. We needed to find a solution that 
allowed us to stay online because we knew that was what the public wanted, but we also needed to make sure we could secure their information and be very succinct with how we were dealing with all that information and getting things out. Are there glitches? Sure. It's computers and people interacting. So you're always going to have something. But overall, yeah, I'd say this is a much better place given given the environment that we live in today, which is, you know, fewer employees to manage the system, less allocated dollars to manage these systems. Those are all pieces and parts of the real world that we're still trying to work within. So let's talk then about the the actual lotteries for each of these. You're you're managing permit systems and some lotteries across the country. Are you actually also doing the lottery selection or does that go back to like dinosaur or back to Idaho to the salmon, the four rivers permit? Well, to answer that, I'm going to correct you. I am not managing them. The local facility managers, the local river managers still manage their own systems. We actually just run the tool for them and make sure it's functioning correctly. So uh, someone who works at dinosaur has set their lottery up using the, the software that we provide. They do all the they do all the setup. And then the execution of the lottery when it comes time for it to happen here in the next few days, that's done using, you know, randomizer threads and all the technology, latest technology that's available to run and execute a regular computerized lottery. Execution itself is run, you know, on the servers of the contractor that provides us software solutions to be able to do this at recreation.gov. The decision to, to issue a permit to someone, if I apply for the Middle Fork and I'm an award at a permit, is that because you think I'm a good voter or is that because it's strictly algorithms and lottery? It's a pure random thread lottery. Let's talk a little bit about the money. I finished my applications last night. $6 seems to be the standard fee. It might vary a little bit. What's that money used for? Uh, the actual reservation fee, which is the $6 that, that you referenced, is actually, uh, and, it's, and it's different per agency, but for the most part, it goes to manage the contract and to provide financial support to the contractor who is doing the work for us. So, I mean, in some ways, is it right to say that it's paying your salary? Oh, yeah. Yes. Just the team that I work on. Do you, do you know when the first river permits went to rec.gov? What year? Uh, that would have been the four rivers and uh, kind of how I worked into this system. So it would have opened in October of 99 and started in 2000. Rec.gov is the tool that river runners use to gain access to the permit application process. That centralized tool lives in a server. Each river permit applied for correlates to an actual river and a river permitting office that is in close proximity to each of these rivers. These offices manage the river and have a team of specialists that support that management. One of these permitted set of rivers, the Green and Yamper Rivers, flow through Dinosaur National Monument, which straddles the northern borders of Utah and Colorado. I was able to talk with their management team to learn more about why permits are required for rivers at Dinosaur, and really, why they are required for any of the popular river stretches. My name is Ethan OJ. I work for Dinosaur National Monument. Um, my official title is the Visitor Service Assistant for the River Program, but I'm more or less the Acting River Manager. We oversee the Green River um, from Gates of Lador 
the door boat ramp to Split Mountain, as well as the Yampa River from Deer Lodge boat ramp to the confluence of the Green River. Both of our rivers run under the same lottery system, same permit system. My name is Dan Johnson. I am the manager of the Monument Interpretation, Education, and Visitor Services uh, Program. I also serve as the Monument's Public Information Officer, and I work here at Dinosaur National Monument. Can you tell me, in your perception, and in maybe the story of Dinosaur, why are permits required for the Green and the Yampa? This is Dan, and... Yes, permits uh, have been required, actually, for quite a long time. I mean, our river management plan goes back to 1979. Prior to really that time, I mean, there was different management options for the river, but we know that there were periods of time where there were, when it was basically unpermitted, unregulated. I mean, we would get groups sometimes, I mean, if you look back into the 1950s, uh, when the Sierra Club and Buzz Hatch and other folks were like running the river, I mean, they would oftentimes take a group of up to 125 people um, on the river on those huge, long uh, pontoon raft boats. You know, when you put that many people basically in this narrow river corridor in campsites, you can have some pretty severe impacts. I mean, the rivers are pretty narrow. They're limited basically on like camping opportunities, particularly during high water season. So when the river management plan was implemented, it was basically a, a process that was run through public comment, but also a lot of analysis of where our campsites are and then what the carrying capacity basically for the rivers are. And then trying to protect some of those different qualities that people come to these rivers for. So the idea is that it feels like wilderness and solitude and it provides people sort of that opportunity to be independent as they run down the river and not really meet a whole lot of other groups. So that's basically why we have a permitting system in place is to both manage our you know, our natural and cultural resources to prevent them from impacts and then also provide the experience for people that they are seeking. You have a unique place there because Echo Park and all this, this wonderful canyon country you have was, was at threat of being dammed at the same time that Glen Canyon Dam on the Colorado was being born in the mine and then, and then laid into, into action plans. And there was, you know, there was a big push with Sierra Club and rallying up the conservation-minded folks around the country to write letters and be present to speak against Echo Park. Is there a relationship between Echo Park not being dammed and the immediacy of a permit system? Is there a correlation there at all? I would say, you know, it's not necessarily immediacy, but there was definitely, when you start looking at kind of the history of rafting on the, the Green and the Yampa Rivers, I mean, Dinosaur is definitely one of the places where it's oftentimes considered sort of a birthplace of modern rafting, where people are trying out lots of different types of boats and, you know, new techniques and figuring this out. And so it was definitely a growth in a recreational opportunity um, and experience for folks. So that just continued to grow basically after uh, the Echo Park Dam story, because a lot more people wanted to see, you know, as the news got out about these canyons, what this place was was about. And so I'm sure there was a, you know, from that kind of early 1950s time um, up until kind of the late 70s when our current river management plan was implemented, uh, I'm sure there were like growth in river opportunities, particularly with, you know, they often say the implementation of, uh, you know, basically the rubber rafts that uh, a lot really opened it up for a lot more people uh, to safely travel down through the rivers. So 
So as that growth probably occurred, that's when the monument began looking. I mean, we're tasked with, and it's part of the Organic Act, is to provide for the enjoyment, but to do it in such a way that leaves the resources unimpaired for the future. So I'm sure as more and more people saw kind of a growth in that activity, that's when they were looking at, it's like, oh, well, we need to maybe need to take some steps. And I'm sure that's where the river permitting program came out of, as it did in many other areas, to try to preserve those areas unimpaired along the river corridor. When did Dinosaur's system go from just in-house, you know, I remember sending the postcards in the mail to your office, and then it went to rec.gov. When was that transition? We started, it was actually a multi-year transition. You know, at first it was just the the application for the lottery itself, and then basically each year, and like I think the very first year it was just like for the multi-day high-use season permits. We still assign the camping and everything kind of in-house. I want to say that was 2015. It was a multi-year process to basically phase it in, so it wasn't implemented at all. Because part of the one thing is we have a really complex system with, you know, two different launch points uh, for two multi-day trips plus a a single-day trip um, and all these kind of converging together and exiting out at the same point. So there was quite a bit of complexity to try to figure out with that and how it was going to work and working with the rec.gov folks. Does Dinosaur have any treaty relationships with these native tribes that are in proximity to Dinosaur National Monument and these two rivers that allow them to call up and request and acquire a permit for their use? We don't have a specific program for tribes themselves, but we have we have 39 actually affiliated tribes with the area of Dinosaur, so It's a wide range. It's not just the tribes nearby, uh, like the Northern Ute, but it goes all the way down to uh, connections of tribes down to um, Pueblo uh, in New Mexico and Arizona. What we do have in um, the river management plan, there is a program, and this allows a launch each week to be designated for different organizations or groups or populations uh, of people who may not necessarily be able to uh, acquire or you know get permits or use the river in the way and it, it might be for a variety of different reasons you know i know there have been discussions in the past where we have talked with some of our concessioners about trying to create youth and service programs um that would particularly try to get some different uh tribal groups that are around us um particularly youth in the tribes to try to bring them into the monument and so that they could have those experiences and to maintain some of those affiliations Do you anticipate any other changes, any changes at all, coming to your permit system there at Dinosaur? You know, we're always, I think, going to continue to try to, like, evolve and adapt, you know, as new technologies, new equipment that people are using. I know one of the things that we've made an adaptation for is that people are using, like, pack rafts, sometimes the places, so we continue to always look and see what's happening. I think... You know, for us, one of the biggest changes, though, that's happening is, you know, as we see a, you know, whether you want to look at it as climate change, we're definitely seeing an expansion of the river season. I mean, it is not uncommon, especially within the past, like, you know, decades since I've been here, to see more and more people using kind of those shoulder seasons or our non-high-use season and launching, um, you know, that we often have you know, after our high use season is open, that we'll still have daily launches sometimes all the way through until the end of November. Basically, until the rivers freeze up, there are people who are still, you know, they've got the gear and equipment and they are 
comfortable doing it that will oftentimes still travel in those off seasons. So that's where we're seeing kind of a real sort of like growth and sort of change from what may have happened, you know, 10, 20 years ago. You expressed that some of this might be climate related in terms of the extension of the seasons. Help me out here. Do you mean that the weather is more mild on the shoulder seasons earlier in the spring, later into the fall, early winter, so that people are physically comfortable being outside in a wet environment. Is that what you're expressing? Right, that's correct. I mean, we're definitely seeing, you know, uh, that trend, particularly in the fall, where we just have long, warmer, drier spells that allow more and more people to continue to go out. You know, and we're seeing that in a a lot of different recreational um, opportunities here in the Monument, and other parks are seeing the same thing. So it's not just river rafting, but people out camping and hiking and all the other things, the activities they're doing, but definitely river rafting. We've seen that because of just, you know, the continual kind of like interest and, you know, seeing how our, our launches during those shoulder seasons do book up. And, you know, we have had some years where basically the river stays ice free almost all winter long. I mean, this year we had enough cold snap that it kind of froze up, but there's, I've talked to enough old-timer river river folks around here that uh, they can talk about launching at least like, uh, you know, once every month throughout the entire year. One of the modern pressures on rivers comes directly from those who enjoy boating rivers, and this includes me. The number of boaters is increasing each year. More people are buying boats and boating gear and applying for the small and static number of permits. To explore this topic of the overall conversation of river permitting, and the increase of applications for the small number of permits, we look at some of the most popular rivers in the West, the rivers of Idaho. In this next section, we go to Idaho and speak with two managers of the Four Rivers Permit. My name is Lisa Byers. I'm the Wilderness and Rivers Program Manager for the Salmon Chalice National Forest, and I work out of the North Fork Ranger District. My passion and love of the rivers really evolved quite a bit in 2010, when I began a 10-year journey as a river ranger. Throughout the Northwest has given me uh, an opportunity to explore many different river systems. My name is Donna Lysinger. I am the river clerk for the Salmon Chalice National Forest. I started working for the Middle Fork Ranger District in 94. I was hired as their basically a clerical position to help with the River Lottery and River Reservation Program. I've been down the river uh, a few times with our river patrol so that I can be able to inform the public about my actual experiences and be able to actually relate a little bit more directly to them. Can you tell us about the river system that you have up there, the Four Rivers Permit, what rivers are in that, the season of the permits, and just kind of describe that permit system. This is Donna. Uh, so the four rivers are made up of the Selway River, the wild section of the Salmon River, Hell's Canyon Snake River, and the Middle Fork of the Salmon River. Those four rivers use a randomized lottery drawing to assign the float launch reservations for the high demand control season launch dates. Each river has its own separate lottery, and a person can submit one lottery application per river. So for myself, I could put in one for the Middle Fork, one for the Selway, one for the Salmon, um, and have one application in for each of those lottery drawings. The Four Rivers coordinate the timing of those annual lotteries, such as when they open and close. 
when we send out the lottery results, those confirmation emails, and when the deadline to accept and confirm any awarded lottery dates, and um, also the deadline to release anything that's not confirmed, to reallocate those. So applications uh, have been submitted online at recreation.gov. In addition to processing the lottery applications, these four rivers also use the recreation.gov program system to manage their cancellations and payments, and uh, we use them to issue the permits as well. Salmon and the Middle Fork are both within the Frank Church River of No Return Wilderness, and the salmon also runs through the Gospel Hunt. Do you know when permitting was first required on the rivers in Idaho? I can give you some of the information that I've read from some of my research of the Middle Fork. I believe the permit system for the Middle Fork was established in the early 1970s. There was a road that was constructed to Dagger Falls in 1959. Um, Fishing Game built a fish ladder there by Dagger Falls, and building that road gave greater access to the Middle Fork. So combined with the popularity of whitewater rafting and gear that came out in the 60s, the number of floaters increased dramatically within a nine-year period. So in 1962, the forest recorded 625 floaters. Nine years later, 1971, 3,250 floaters were recorded. I think that's a five-fold increase. And then in 1968, October 2nd, the Middle Fork of the Salmon was one of the eight rivers that was designated in the Bald and Scenic Rivers Act. So about uh, 1971 or so, um, the forest decided uh, a river manager position was needed uh, to help explore and implement uh, the programs that affected the use of the Middle Fork and uh, to hopefully address the increasing number of floaters. So they established a permit system for the Middle Fork. Um, Part of that included figuring out how many launches per day, setting up the initial commercial launch schedule. All that happened in the early 1970s, I believe 1973. I'm curious about your overall numbers you're getting for the Four Rivers permits and then how many actual permits you are able to issue. Yes, I have all these numbers online at our Four Rivers Lottery page. We have a bunch of statistical information. So in 2010, for the Middle Fork, there are almost 9,800 applications, and for the salmon, a little over 5,000. For 2020, for the Middle Fork, there were over 17,000, and for the main, 13,000, a little over 13,000. And so for all four rivers, last year for the 2020 float season, um, there were 43,214 applications submitted and 1,054 actual permits. And do you have numbers for 2021? So it looks like the Middle Fork has 22,400 and some, and the Salmon, a little over 18,000 this year. To summarize those numbers, in 1962, there were 625 total floaters along the Middle Fork of the Salmon, and the number of applicants for the Middle Fork for the coming 2021 season is over 22,000 applicants. Fortunately for the river's sake and for those boating, of those 22,000 applicants, only 387 permits will be issued each year. 
There are also 306 commercial permits each summer on the Middle Fork. The total number of people traveling there will remain the static number it has been for the past few decades because that carrying capacity number was established many years ago. That 44,000 number of applicants that you also heard refers to the total applicants for all four rivers, the Snake, the Selway, the Main Salmon, and the Middle Fork. One of the things that's on my mind that you all have alluded to through your data is the growth of the boating industry and how that's changed. I mean, these numbers come in from 1962 at 600 people down there to the numbers of people that are now accessing um, and that want to. There's a big difference, I, I think, too, between the, you know, the, there's the regulated access and then there's a bunch of people in line that really want to go. I'm curious how you all and how you your systems are preparing for increased w- desire to use these rivers and um, and what conversations you're having around that kind of stuff. This is Lisa. Well, at the moment, there aren't any changes in, in the works. You know, as long as the growth of the population increases in these western states and nationwide, we'll likely see what we're already seeing, an increase in applications for river permits. But at this moment, the number of permits for each river are determined through the guidance through the Frank Church River of No Return Management Plan. And sometime in the future, changes would go through that management plan, a revision of that management plan. And so when that pro- when we do get to that point, there will be a robust public involvement process and the public will have their opportunity uh, to share their voice and give their input. Um, you know, and that's in the future, that's what will happen is, is a revision of that Freight Church River of No Return Management Plan. The conversation you just heard about these significant increases in boater applications for permits is not unique to those rivers in Idaho. From all the signals I am seeing in my research, most permitted rivers are having the same application increase. We will look at one last river and river corridor, the Colorado River through Grand Canyon National Park. This trip is unique for many reasons to include the overall length in miles and time and the quality of landscape and whitewater. The Grand Canyon is one of the most popular landscapes in our country and the world, regardless if a person is traveling by river or land. We now hear about the Grand Canyon's permit system. We will talk with Steve Sullivan, who you heard at the very top of the episode saying this. Well, now we saw that the you know Park Service's role should be to work as seamlessly as possible with the public to get them out there so they can have that real experience. I have my own computer programming um, background, plus uh, I studied religion and philosophy. And then one of the things in religion and philosophy that I really enjoyed was just the fact that um, people, before they would do, say, or think their greatest thoughts would go spend time in the wilderness, it seemed. And to me, that's probably the best role I can have is just to help people make that happen. My name is Steve Sullivan, and I am a Grand Canyon National Parks Permits Program Manager, and I've been working here for, uh, it's actually getting close to 30 years. I work out of our Flagstaff offices, but I have employees on the South Rim and on the North Rim and in Flagstaff. I actually do not spend much time on the water. I spend most of my time sitting in front of a desk. And tell us about the river. I, I think that it's just one river that you oversee. Tell us about what river you oversee. Yeah, the Colorado River uh, is about 
1,450 miles long. Uh, Grand Canyon's portion of that is about 277 miles. And uh, Lee's Ferry is the put-in, our launch location, and we call that River Mile Zero. And Diamond Creek is the first trip takeout location, and it's at River Mile 226. And Pierce Ferry is the alternative takeout location further down the river at River Mile 279. And so I manage all the permits for all of that section. Will you explain, please, the general details of your river and permitting system? Sure. The, you know, the management plan focuses on uh, really three key seasons. There's the summer use that happens from May through August. And there's the winter use that happens from November through February. And then there's the two shoulder season pairs of months on each side. So March and April in the spring and September and October in the fall. And we call that the shoulder season. There's also a, um, a non-motor season uh, when motor trips are not allowed on the river. And that season spans from September 16th through March 31st. And how many, how many permit applications are you receiving for each of these seasons? Last year... Last February, we had our main lottery, and that year we had 7,826 applications. Uh, 59% of those were asking for the shoulder season months. 35% of them were asking for the summer season, and 8% were asking for the winter season. How many permits are you issuing annually for these different seasons? The Colorado River Management Plan allows us to issue 503 Uh, trip launch dates per year for non-commercial users. And all those launch dates do get claimed, uh, but we also see that some of them are canceled. And so we have uh, what we call follow-up lotteries. And most of these are, are, well, they all get reclaimed by others. We do have some that get canceled last minute. And so um, we have a system to take care of those as well. The lottery for 2022 is now open. It's on your website. You can get the email. You can go directly to your website and get it. That's open. Um, so what, what happens? If I put my application in for a 2022 launch, what's the process for the application that it goes through before it becomes a permit or it becomes a denial? How does your computer lottery system work? Before I do that, let me talk about what weighted means because that's key in answering your question. Grand Canyon's lottery system is a weighted lottery system. Uh, What that means is that we are giving more chances to people who have not been on the river as recently as others. Basically, it's kind of simple this way. If if you get one chance, if if you went on the river within the last year, and if it's been uh, two years since you last went, you get two chances. Three years, three chances, four years, four chances. Five chances is, is the maximum we give for standard chances. And that's given to everybody who has never been on the water or who has gone and last went five or more years ago. And so that's the basic way that the weighted lottery chances or points, we call them, work. When you apply through our lottery system, you can list up to five different launch dates on your lottery application. And then when the lottery is run, it's run by the computer system, of course, and the process can be envisioned as follows. For each application submitted, Basically, one miniature copy of that application is placed in the hat for each chance that the application is to get. Once all the applications are in, the contents of the hat are mixed, and an application is randomly selected by the computer system for consideration. 
and that application is considered in its entirety with the computer following the preference order listed on the application and seeking to award the first launch that's available. And the computer then picks another application from the hat and considers it in its entirety. And that process continues until all the applications in the hat have been considered. So that's how the lottery works. You, you alluded a little bit to the cancellations. Can you just go into a little bit more detail? So let's say that I, I apply for a permit here in February. I'm awarded that permit. I'm getting closer to my launch date, but I decide to cancel. What happens to my permit if it's canceled? So in general, we get that uh, we try and get that launch date back out through another lottery, and so that everyone can apply for it. Uh, sometimes permittees do cancel their permits so late that we do not have time to re-release the launch in time for it to be claimed again by somebody else. Uh, but luckily for those situations, our superintendent has authorized us to make those launch dates available as additional launches uh, exactly one year later. So it would be the same month and the same day, but in the subsequent year. And so if folks want to tap into that cancellation system, that's also available on your website. Is that right? That's right. The Grand Canyon's lottery system is set up so that you can go onto our website and register to get our emails, basically. You don't have to pay anything to do that. And the system will send you an email whenever we're having one of our lotteries. And you can tell it, you know, you're interested in, in only launching in September. Or you can tell it you want to hear for hear about any lottery that's for any month of the year. And whatever that is, the system will use that. So just to give you an idea, when we opened this main lottery at the beginning of February, uh, we sent out about 48,500 emails. Uh, that many people are interested in hearing about it. There's two native tribes neighboring the the Grand Canyon Park itself, the Navajo Nation up high and the Hualapai Nation lower down on the river. Are there any other tribal jurisdictions that neighbor the park? Well, there are, there are lots of tribes that actually uh, claim something to do with the Grand Canyon. We border uh, tribal lands at different places along the river, and so we have uh, we have others that work with us throughout the year. And, and there are other local tribal councils that uh, sometimes obtain or participate in river trips to the canyon. Most of those will get those through our administrative river trip process because they have a, a different kind of a reason. It's not just recreational use. There's something special about their relationship with the place. And so we take care of them with administrative river permits. And the Wallapai tribe uh, runs commercial river trips in the canyon below Diamond Creek. But the river itself is all Grand Canyons to manage. For all of the river offices, including rec.gov, I had the same last question for each of them. So the last question is, if I, like, sent you a pizza, um, you know, every month or so for the next few months, can I get a permit? No. Uh, The frozen turkey question, no. (laughs) We'd love to, but no, no. (laughs) (laughs) But no, we really don't have that kind of power. Uh, But, you know, it never hurts to ask, right? Or maybe it does. That's a great question. This episode was edited and produced by me, Sam Carter. In the show notes, you can find links to the statistic pages and the main river pages for the river offices we talked with today. A dream permit-sized thanks goes out to all of the folks who contributed to this episode and joined me for the conversation. We are always looking for new leads on great show topics and river culture. You can reach us by email, hello at theriverradius.com. 
Thanks so much for joining the River Radius. I was working at Boundary Creek in the mid-90s, and we got a call saying someone had come and they had bubonic plague. And they had interacted with six other groups, you know, at the launch area the day they launched. And so we had to shut everything down, the road going in. We had to drop plane messages from folks who were downriver to ask them to stay in place. Uh, Luckily, they ended up not having the super contagious, dangerous bubonic plague. They had a a lesser uh, strain. Just the the process of putting all those steps in place to contain people who had come. uh, Yeah, it was mind boggling.